When I was a kid, I came to bat quite a bit for the Cincinnati Reds in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded, Game 7 of the World Series with the lights on, television cameras broadcasting and all around the world, and there I am at the plate. Full count, and here it comes. And every single time, I knocked it out of the park. Every single time. I mean, I, you're not surprised by it. I, I know. I can, you, it's okay. I mean, you see me. I, you know, I, every time, boom, out of the park. I don't know what it was for you that you imagined when you were a kid doing that in that moment I'll come through. But for me, it was the Reds somehow make the World Series. And I, I'm there in the bottom of the ninth, full count, two outs, bases loaded, and I hit a grand slam to win it. Now, for you, maybe it was something different. And we all have those things even now that, that you have to imagine yourself coming through. It may be some presentation at work. It may be a moment with your kids. It, it may be something that you're enduring or you're going through, and you know now is the time when I really have to come through. And it's a big moment. Maybe it's something different from when it was your childhood, but you know, I've often wondered, how is it that people can come through in those big moments? I mean, we're going to see in the Scripture today a huge moment where three guys come through demonstrating unwavering commitment to the Lord. And it's, I mean, it is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. They made VeggieTales movies out of it. I mean, it, it's so big. But how was it that they were able to come through in the face of extreme resistance and opposition? That's what we'll look at this morning. The, the series that we're in is called Commit. And there's a reason that we're doing this, not just because it, it preaches well, not just because it's a, it's a short little title, but, but I believe we, we see in our world that commitment is very rare. Commitment to anything. You know, it used to be, of course, that when people made a commitment, they stuck to it. Those of you that are older, you talk about this all the time. I know you do. I mean, you, you complain incessantly about the generations below you. They just don't know anything about commitment. You know, when I was a kid, we had to be committed. I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I milked the cows, and I picked up all the eggs, and I did all the stuff. And then I cleaned the house, and it was spotless, and I walked uphill both ways to school. We didn't even have shoes and I had to wear the stuff that I cleaned everything with. I mean, you know, but I was committed. You know, that's the way, isn't that true? And, and the generations before you, they said the same thing about you. It's just the way it is. Nobody's ever been committed, have they? But, you know, I really believe that we're facing a time where, where commitment is becoming more rare. I, I really believe that, not just because I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, though I am. But, you know, it seems to be that, that commitment on either side. I mean, just look at employees and employers. There, there's, there's fewer and fewer long-term commitments that are made. And you look at marriages that dissolve, and there's just fewer and fewer commitments that are made and are kept. And it would just go on and on. So commitment is rare. And I, and I really believe that what we're seeing in our world is not just commitment in general. But as we'll look to the Scripture and we'll focus on our Christian commitment, I, I really believe that, that a true commitment to Jesus is becoming much more rare. And I'm not just talking about that fewer people go to church. That, that may or may not be the best gauge. I, I'm talking about a true, no matter what, no matter what commitment to the Lord. It's so rare. 
Our country now makes it okay to be a Christian so long as you're, you're okay with blending that Christianity with whatever might be popular or overwhelming at the time, so long that, that you really don't commit to it, so long that, that it doesn't truly affect you, that, that it's something personal that you don't live out. That's where we are in our, in our world today. You can be a Christian, just keep it to yourself. You can be a Christian, just don't talk about it. You can be committed to the Lord, sort of, but just don't really be committed to Him. And, and so I think it's a perfect time to talk about what really does commitment look like. I, I, honestly, I want to call us to a high commitment to the Lord, not because I want to feel better as a pastor that look what I accomplished, but I think that's what God calls us to. And so I, I'd, be, I'd be lying to you if I said less than what the Lord says. And so today, as we've looked over the last few weeks, we're going to look at commitment today a little bit from a different angle, only on the fact that we're going to look at now, if you commit to the Lord, what are you going to face? And we get an ancient story that is so incredibly applicable to our world today. This story really could have been written today, and we could draw all kinds of parallels. It will not surprise you at all, anything that I'm going to tell you today, that this story points to the the same kinds of things that we'll face today if you're going to be committed to the Lord. Just like if I were going to actually play for the Cincinnati Reds and hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs and the bases loaded in the seventh game of the World Series, I would have had to have been committed long before that moment came, and that's what we'll see today. And along the way, I would have faced in and of myself and from the outside lots of resistance and opposition. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel may be tough to find. It's over in the Old Testament. And it's, it's one of the, the books uh, that are, that's known as the minor prophets. And minor just means they were, they were smaller. They just didn't write as much. So it goes Ezekiel and then Daniel and then Hosea. Daniel is just a, a, a relatively short little book. It's about 12 or 13 chapters. And And you'll see Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Now, Daniel, of course, may be familiar to you. Daniel was the guy in the lion's den. You know, Daniel in the lion's den. That comes a little bit later from what we'll look at this morning. But but we're going to look this morning at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the fiery furnace. You probably have heard about that, even if you have never been in church. Or maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you'll, you'll know this story. Let me give you, as you're turning there, a little bit of information. Somewhere around 605 B.C., a king from Babylon known as Nebuchadnezzar, he took over Jerusalem, the Holy Land for the Jews. He took it over and he exiled a lot of the, the most capable Jewish young men. He, he took them to be in his service. And so these guys experienced a land where religion was different, where it wasn't their religion. They experienced a government that was different and was, was going to try to force them to conform. And they experienced a different expectation of the citizens. It wasn't follow God, Yahweh God, it was do what we tell you to do. And this is a part of Daniel, the first part, where the focus is really on how do you live when you are in an ungodly world? How can you live godly in an ungodly world? And it shows the need for faithfulness and the kind of commitment that's required. And These main characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, they they had been committed and had refused to compromise all along in the book of Daniel so far. Just a couple of chapters, we see their commitment not to eat food that would have, would have defiled them as, according to some Jewish traditions and so on. We, we see their commitment to the Lord uh, to, to seek out God in all things and, and to make sure that they're not going to compromise. But the real moment of truth for these guys comes in chapter 3. And the other things we kind of look at and say, well, okay, maybe not that big a deal Chapter 3 paints a completely different picture. And what we're going to find from them is that their commitment 
when the spotlight is on, when people can see it, their commitment brought automatically, automatically brought extreme resistance and opposition. Their commitment to the Lord made that extremely intense. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he he makes, here's the king, and he sets up this big statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's 9 stories tall, 9 feet wide. This thing is huge, it's imposing, and he sets it up in an area where everybody can take a look at it. Everybody's going to see it sitting here on the plane. You, you look out, you're going to see this 90-foot statue. This was not uncommon. A lot of kings during this time would do this. In fact, for, for thousands of years they've been doing this. In about 2500 B.C., the great Sphinx of Egypt was built, much like this, this, this kind of structure that, that really it kind of represents the god or gods behind the power of the throne of Babylon. That's what this particular statue was. It's overlaid with gold. You can imagine 90 feet worth of gold, extremely expensive, very impressive, and it represents all the spiritual and legal authority of the king. So he sets this up. Nobody really knows why he's doing it until we get to the next part. Here's where we see the beginning of the opposition. Again, I love how the scripture breaks down for us on this, and it shows us here's the different kinds of opposition. I've summarized it on the back of, of that particular sermon outline sheet. You'll see this, and, uh, and I messed up on some of the formatting, so you don't have much space to write. I apologize on that. Um, but, but what you'll see is some of the opposition. Look at it in verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all their magistrates, as we say here in East Calway, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, the king said it, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. They stood before the statue, King Nebuchadnezzar, had set, up, had set up. The first kind of opposition you're going to face is what we see here. It's no mistake that they list all these different levels of officials. The first kind is going to be systematic opposition. When you commit to the Lord, let me just tell you, if, you, if you're wavering on your commitment, last week we talked about counting the cost. If you, if you have any inkling whatsoever, I'm going to give my life completely to the Lord. And maybe for, for some, you've already done this and you've seen this, but maybe you're a young person and you say, what am I going to face? What's this going to involve? I'm going to tell you this morning. It's going to involve lots of opposition. One kind of opposition you're going to see is systematic opposition. What's interesting is they get people of all levels of government. They, from the top to the bottom, are going to systematically make sure that everybody is loyal to whatever it was that was popular at the time. So they go and they get the satraps. These were the princes, the chief representatives of the king, the people who are over lots of things. Then the prefects, the military commanders, or the, or the local guys. The governors who, who administered a, a province, maybe like Judea. The advisors who gave uh, counsel and advice to those people in government authority. Then the treasurers, they got the money people as well. The judges, those who made decisions about the law. And they even get the magistrates who are the folks who enforce the law. They have from top to bottom infiltrated every part of their particular land with this idea that you will worship whatever we've set up. Now if that doesn't sound familiar then you're not paying attention to the way that things are going in our country today. 
And that's nothing at all political. From top to bottom, on any side of the aisle that you go to, there is something that we are being told that we must buy into regardless of what it is. And it's not just in government. It's not just in politics. It's in the arts. It's in our music. It's in everything that we're told. It's in our schools. It's in the whole thing that we're told, this is what we will worship, whatever this might be right now in the moment. It's always been that way. Always has. It's systematic opposition. You're going to bump against it. This requirement, this expectation that you will pay homage to, you will bow down to whatever it is in society that, it's, that, that it is proclaimed to you, this is what you must do in order for us to accept you. So here's a testing of their loyalty. And what's interesting is these three guys we'll see, they were part of this. They were high-ranking government officials. They weren't just Joe Schmo. They were guys that were selected because they were extremely capable and they were given high positions. In fact, in chapter 2, they're promoted and now they have really high-ranking positions inside the Babylonian government. Now, the thing about this is is that when this is assembled and folks are told that they're going to bow down and worship this, it wasn't as if these three guys would have had to denounce Yahweh, God, They would just have to mix in this statue with their worship. I mean, it'd just be pluralistic. You just just sort of mesh it all together. You just sort of, okay, you just accept that there is other things to worship, that that there are other gods out there. That's what they're really being asked to do. It It wasn't loyalty only to this particular God, but it would have had to be loyalty to God, Yahweh, and something else. This would have been their national and positional and obvious duty to gather with these people and then do whatever the king told them. When you commit to the Lord, the opposition to you will be systematic. It will be designed to make everyone from top to bottom and wherever you are, your school, your business, your organization, our country, wherever, it will be designed from top to bottom to make everyone conform. And the opposition will also be vocal. And this next part here in verse 4. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. This was an order by decree from the king. You will fall down and you will worship this particular idol. It was a demand for a public display of recognition and submission to King Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate authority. It was vocal from an official position. Everyone would have heard it. It was all over the news. They were broadcasting it everywhere. It was accepted universally. It seemed to be the only voice talking, and if other voices were talking, this was the only one that was going to be heard. There was no opposition expected. I don't know about you, but it's always interesting to me to see what the most vocal kinds of things are in our world today. The trends that are going on, the themes and the ideas that receive the most attention and get the microphone time. Usually those things aren't the things that God wants for us. If you pay attention, the vocal opposition that you'll face in today's world, is not just trying to talk more loudly than the people of God, but they're trying to silence 
the people of God. It's vocal opposition, and it's loud, and people are listening, and it's gaining momentum. Whether it's this issue or that issue, whatever it may be, or whether it's at school and young people, you're dealing with this vocal opposition to your life as a believer in Jesus. The opposition will be vocal. It will seem to drown out anything else. And the message of God will be drowned out, it will seem, by the people who are speaking and preaching something else. You'll also face a very threatening opposition. Look at verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, the fiery furnace. This is the king's threat. And the people took him seriously because he'd done it before. This wasn't something that he was just sort of, well, let me see if, if I can scare him into something. He was dead serious. There will be repercussions if you do not conform to what I'm telling you to do. The king dared. He dared anybody to defy his order and go against what he said. Submission to this was was obligatory. I mean, you didn't have you didn't really have any choice. It was going to be you submit, you bow down, you worship, or else. In this case, or else you will die. Period. You know, in, in our cases, we face lots of different or else's, don't we? You know, we have this opposition to us that if we stand for biblical principles, if we live a life of integrity, if we're unwilling to compromise on our commitment to the Lord, we're not, I don't know that we're going to face anything individually that's going to capture national attention and, and the news is going to show up. That's probably not going to be the case for the majority of us. But you know, you're going to face an or else. You do this or else you're going to lose your job. I mean, you, you, you compromise on these things. I mean, you fudge this report right here, or I'm sorry, but we're going we're gonna to find somebody else. You're going to lose your job. Or maybe it's not losing a job, but if you don't do these things and operate according to this system that you know is, is ungodly and is different from the biblical principles that you've been taught and you've lived by, you're just not going to move up. But you're going to be stuck right where you are in that dead end. And you've got a choice to make. Again, this isn't just about what's going on in the national level. This is personal. It's threatening opposition. Nobody may, may come to you and beat on your door, but you know the threat that's there, the subtle, maybe even unspoken. You know, if you, if you don't agree with, with this particular or that particular ungodly principle or lifestyle or whatever it may be, then you're going to be viewed as intolerant and a bigot. Period. It's going to happen. People are not going to understand you. You don't. You do this or else people are going to think you're crazy. What? You do this or you're going to, you're going to miss out. You know, the old cliche is the peer pressure that young people face, you know, and everybody's yelling at you, do this or whatever. You know, really, I think what a lot of young people face is the idea that they're just going to be ostracized and, and they're not going to, people are just not going to pay any attention to them. If you're not willing to do these things to get that attention or that or whatever, you just—you're going to get passed by. You're going to miss out on whatever it is that seems to be offered by those people. There's going to be some awful penalty if you don't compromise. 
You've got it. You've got something in your mind right now, whatever it may be. The opposition will threaten you with whatever you fear most to lose. Whatever it is that you fear to lose, that's what the opposition will threaten you with. And I'm not even talking about people. It it will be a spiritual battle that Satan will send the forces of darkness, and I truly mean that, to seemingly threaten you. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. People are going to do this. They're going to think that or whatever. Whatever it is that you fear most is what you'll be threatened with. These guys... Figure the king figured they just they're going to fear death most. So I'm going to threaten to kill them. Whatever it is, it's going to be threatening opposition. You'll also face, as we see here in verse seven, popular opposition. Therefore, I love this. I mean, it's just well automatically. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language—that's what they've been told—fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It was universal and mindless compliance. When the music played, the crowd fell down. Mindless, but popular. Total, immediate response. You realize that most people in our world don't think for themselves. They just pay attention to what somebody else tells them to do. They're going to find out whatever's trending on Twitter or popular on Facebook or the news is telling them that this is the way you ought to think and that's what they're going to do. You realize that? If people are going to think for themselves, it has to begin with the believers in Jesus who will say, I will utilize my mind. I'm not turning it off because I know the Lord. I'm going to utilize it. I'm going to think for myself. All these folks, music plays, they hit the ground. It's no different where you live, where you work, where you go to school. It's no different. They may not be playing a harp, but whatever it is that triggers, okay, everybody has to get on board with this now, I guess. Boom. Everybody falls down. You know, there was little or no compromise for all those people in that crowd. They didn't have anything to lose. They didn't care about the Lord. When we see popular trends in our world today, and young people, make sure you listen to me. When we see things that are happening in our world, whatever it may be, and they're telling you what to believe, and it's different from God's Word, they have nothing to lose. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about you. They don't care about anything you believe in. They don't. It's just popular. It's just a wave of momentum. You can take that as me talking to you as an old guy if you want to, but it's just the truth. I faced it. I get it. One day I'll tell you the stories about three different middle schools that I went to, the four elementary schools that I faced a variety of things in. and Popular opposition. You know, it's amazing what social pressure can do. You know, social media is one of those things through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, and whatever else it is that you happen to be on, the newest thing that came out last week to hide from your parents, whatever it may be. There's a lot of it. You guys know this. I'm not, you know. You know, it's amazing, though, what can happen. I don't know if you, if, if, let me just, let me instruct the older folks here today, all right? Those of you that don't know what Twitter or Facebook or any of that might be. Now, some of you have gotten on board. You just don't want anybody to know, okay? You're hiding behind some anonymous account on Twitter, you know. You don't make any friend requests on Facebook. You just, like, you know, you got on board, but you don't want anybody to know. The kids have been on you for years, but 
You know, there, there, there are ways to get things that are going, and they call it trending, and use what's called a hashtag. It's the old number sign, pound sign on the phone. You know, whatever kind of phone you were using, okay? And so there's ways to get this. And you can search these things to find out what are people interested in, what are they talking about online right now. And it's amazing. And these things, they trend like that. It's just building up a wave of momentum. Popular opposition, social pressure can do so much. But we've all seen it recently with the ice bucket challenge. I mean, it's just amazing. People dumping ice on their heads. I mean, think about the concept. Now, for a cause, obviously, that will help a lot of people, we pray. And, and I will, will encourage you with this as a very side note. If you've donated money or plan to, to any kind of ALS research, make sure that you're doing that. To folks who are not doing embryonic stem cell research, where they're taking aborted babies and researching from them, they have ways that you can do that from adults and not from children. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it just, it's like a steamroller. Popular opposition. With death in their face, how could these guys not bow? The opposition will be popular. It will feel as if when you stand for the Lord, when you live your life for Jesus Christ, it will feel like I guarantee you that you are standing by yourself. That's one of the things, I'm going to be honest with you, why I love coming here on Sunday mornings. Because at least for a time, isn't it amazing, at least for a time we know we're not alone. And we may not all see the world the exact same way. We got some folks that are going to sit on one side and other folks on the other side of the aisle. And I get all of that, and that's fine. But I'm going to tell you, at least for a time, we know we're not alone in our commitment to Jesus. And that's one reason, listen, if I could ever beg you to get involved, not for my sake, but to get involved for your sake and for the sake of the kingdom of God with the church of Jesus Christ right here at Elm Grove, it's because at least for a while you'll know you're not alone. There's something encouraging that comes with that. Don't feel pressure to come on every Sunday morning. That's not what I'm talking about. But the popular opposition is going to sweep you up if you don't have anybody standing with you. Because not only is it popular, but it's also vicious opposition. Verses 8 through 12 tell us this. Some Chaldeans, these were the wise men, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. The word maliciously, it means to eat the pieces of torn off flesh after you've ripped it from somebody's body. Now that's a graphic way to put how they felt about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's what the word means. You rip somebody apart and eat their flesh. That's just gross. That's what, that, that's what it's described that they're doing. This huge crowd gathers. They all fall down. Maybe the king couldn't see because of the size of the crowd. These three guys are standing. And so immediately, these guys go to the king. King, we want you to know that we're with you. 
We, we bowed. We, we love you. We're going to do whatever you tell us to do. There are three guys, though, that you have set up. You, you've given them promotions. You, you have, you've put them in positions of power, and guess what? They're, they're defying you. And these guys were jealous, make no mistake, because as wise men in chapter 2, they couldn't interpret the king's dreams. And guess who it was that was able to interpret the king's dreams? The man of God, Daniel himself. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are promoted with Daniel. And now these guys want their positions, and the vicious opposition begins. Severe hatred. Bitter language. Like I said, this could have been written today. In our world, what's said about Christians when you don't get on board with whatever might be popular in today's world, if you don't compromise your beliefs, if you won't settle or mesh together your faith with something else, it's going to be vicious. It's going to be malicious and bitter and hateful. It's going to be personal. It's going to be hurtful. It'll be insensitive to you. There will be people, whether they are personal to you or whether it's just uh, in, in our world that are going to viciously attack those who refuse to compromise, those who will not give up their commitments. Do not be surprised when it happens. And then I, I love the next part. There's surprised opposition. Then in a furious rage, I mean, the king's beside himself, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't, don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now if you're ready, <laughs> when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. It's as if he can't believe that somebody would actually have the gall to stand up and defy what he said. He's, he's incredulous. He's in disbelief. He's beside himself. There's, this, this isn't true, right? I mean, there's, re, there's really no way that you didn't do this. I, I've gotten a bad report. I mean, it's almost as if he says, I'm, I'm angry because I'm getting this report, but seriously, guys, didn't happen, right? Okay, so let's, let's do it all over. We'll just... We'll have a do-over. We'll, we'll pretend that didn't even happen. I'm going to give you another chance. And when you hear the music, go just fall on the ground. Just, everything will be fine. No big deal. Okay, we'll, we'll just erase all that. You ever dealt with somebody like that who, who cannot truly believe? I mean, they're just they're, they're blown away, but you actually I mean, you believe all that stuff you hear at church? I mean, you think God is actually real? I mean, you think Jesus was 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 really God's son? I mean, like you you actually believe that one man could die for the sins of the entire world, and through faith in that one man, that you can be forgiven? That like doesn't make sense. They're surprised. The opposition you'll face, they, they won't understand why you're refusing whatever it is that you're refusing. Whatever it may be, they won't get it. Just, they'll be blown away. And they'll quickly turn from surprised opposition to very intimidating opposition. Look at the end of verse 15. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire, a furnace of blazing fire. And then the line that Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, regretted later on. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? 
It's in their face. The full weight of all of this opposition directed right at them. Maybe you've had to stand there and take it before. What God can rescue you now? The powers that be in your life will threaten and intimidate you and will essentially challenge there is no one and nothing more powerful in your life than me or than this. Whatever that may be. I think it's important to realize in those times, though, that when those things, those institutions, those people, whatever it may be, that set themselves up against you like that and say, you better do this or else, they are essentially saying, you do this or else, and what God can rescue you now? What God is going to take care of you if you lose your job? If those people don't like you anymore, if you're criticized, if you're ostracized, if they don't get it, what God is going to help you then? You can't even see the God that you worship. The pressure is to bow to what you can see. What has been made by human hands, which violates the first and second commandments. You'll have no other gods before me and make unto yourselves nothing, no image to worship. The king believed that everybody had a price. He just raised the stakes high enough and everybody's going to cave. He challenged God and he challenged their courage. This isn't us against them, by the way, whoever they might be. This is them against God. They want to stand against God. Good luck, pal. I'm not going to get in your way. You want to set yourself up against God and challenge him and say, what God can rescue you if you don't give in to this mindset or this belief or this popular thought or these actions or whatever else it is? You may fire me, you may not be my friend, you may criticize me, you may call me out, you may, may make fun of me, intimidate me, all you want, but ultimately you're setting yourself up against God. Good luck with that. The opposition will always be intimidating. It will seem, seem strong and insurmountable. How then? <laughs> That's all the bad news. How then do you respond to that? I mean, some of you are thinking, man, just close in prayer, just want to get out of here. I'm going to go be somewhere where I don't have to face any opposition, like watching football today. That's all I want to do. Here's how they did it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer (laughs) to this question. And there's no apology for their stance. They don't say, look, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but they they make no apology. None. Now, they're not being belligerent. They're not being rude, they're just being firm. It's not proud, just firm. If the God we serve exists, now they're not doubting God, they're just leaving it in His hands, then He can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. That's how much faith they had in the Lord, not because of their incredible faith, but because of what He had done before. They knew the stories about the Exodus. I mean, that's the great moment in Jewish history is the Exodus. When God led the people out of slavery and He swallowed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and after, before that, he'd sent all the plagues to prepare the Egyptians to kick them out. <laughs> they knew all those stories. That's the God that we serve. The God we serve exists, and he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, O king. You got nothing. You may think you do. You may think you hold all the cards, and that's fine. But the God I serve 
can rescue me from that power. But even if he does not rescue us, hear the words of faith. We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Even if he does not. You realize that faith in God understands that he is able. But faith also accepts the fact that he may not. This is no guarantee. We, I'm going to stop here just so you know in these verses. I'm not even going to give you, I'll give you in just a second, the, the rest of the story. But they didn't know the rest of the story. They didn't know what was going to happen. And they said, even if the rest of the story isn't any good for us, we will not, O oh king, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image you've set up. God is able to deliver us, they say, but he may not. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to love him and serve him. Their lives were not so important as to defy God and disobey the commands that He had given them. The major key in all this really is that they had all along been making these even-if decisions. (laughs) This wasn't the first time for them. How do you come through in the bottom of the ninth with the game on the line? Well, you've prepared ahead of time. How do you come through when the pressure's on and this moment of truth hits you and you think, what am I going to do? This is really it. It's reached the pinnacle. Well, it begins with those commitments all along. Don't underestimate the smaller commitments like they made in chapters 1 and 2. But how do you respond to this opposition? Let me just tell you, I encourage you to face your next even-if moment with courageous faith. It's coming. It's going to happen. It may be huge, and everybody knows. It may be small, and nobody knows. But you say to yourself, even if I don't get promoted, even if I stand alone, even if I lose a few friends, even if I'm tempted to give in, even if no one will know, even if it costs me money, even if it's public, even if it's politically incorrect, or even if I have to wait in this part of my life, even if I don't know what's going to happen next, I will not compromise. God is able, but even if He doesn't, Even if things don't go the way I want, even if, even if, even if, I will not compromise my commitment. That kind of courageous faith, by the way, isn't just having faith. Faith in faith, or faith in something. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that we must fix our eyes on Jesus who is the author, the originator, the pioneer of our faith. He is also the perfecter, the one who grows us in faith. He is the one in whom we have faith. Because guess what the rest of the story tells us in Daniel 3? (laughs) The king flies into an even bigger rage, heats up the furnace quite a bit, throws these guys in. The furnace is so hot that the guys who toss them in die, and they get into the furnace, and the king somehow finds his way to look closely enough to see that not three, but four guys are walking around in there. And he says, we put three in, right? Uh-huh. You guys, I'm not crazy. I'm seeing four. You guys see four? Uh-huh. Who's the fourth one? It says it looks like the Son of Man. Many people will believe this was a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Regardless of who it is, we understand that the Lord himself came and walked in the fire with these guys. They had courageous faith, not because they're so great, but because they knew God is able, 
And He might deliver us and He might not, but He'll be right there with us the whole time. And that's the kind of commitment and foundation we've got to have. Our courageous faith comes from the one who walks in the fire with us. The one who never wavered in his commitment and his obedience to God the Father. The one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us on the cross to save us from our sins. The question just simply is, will you trust him? Will you be committed to him even if? You don't owe it to me and you don't answer to me. Answer to him. The God that we serve, you answer to him. Will you make a fresh commitment today? Even if. Here's how we're going to close our time. When we have the Lord's Supper here, you know it takes a few extra moments at the end of the service. And we don't do this as an add-on. Then I know the sermon this morning, I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it. It's kind of intense. (laughs) I'm getting a little tired. And I'll be tired the rest of the day because it's pretty intense. It's tough when we read these kinds of scriptures and deal with these kinds of truth. It really is. We're going to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder to us of the one who walked with us through the fire. The one who went to the cross on our behalf and shed his blood and let his body be broken and crushed so that we might have forgiveness and new life. The same God that showed up in the fire with those three guys showed up on the cross for us and shows up today. And in these next few moments... All I'm going to ask you is, would you take time to deal with God and whatever He's telling you this morning? Whatever even-if moment you might be facing that you know is coming, or maybe you don't even know it's going to happen, you just say, Lord, I'm making this morning a fresh commitment to you. And I'm not going to call you to all kinds of rededications and all that. If that's what you need to do, that's fine. But I just want you to say, Lord, this morning, again, I'm committed to you. I love you above life itself. And even if, whatever... Lord, you have my heart. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment, and then we'll sing a closing hymn, and we'll be dismissed. But I challenge and encourage all of us this morning, myself included, let's, let's hear the call to commitment. Understand the opposition. Understand what commitment will cost you, but understand what a lack of commitment will cost you as well. Let me ask our deacons to come forward and gather here, and we'll begin to distribute the Lord's Supper to you, and... As they're coming, I'll give you just a couple of instructions on this. Here at Elm Grove, we we offer this to those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, who are committed to Him. So if that's you, then you're more than welcome to partake in this. If not, then just let it pass by. No no obligation here. We're not going to force anybody. The way we distribute this, our deacons will hand it out in just a moment. You'll receive first a little cracker. Hang on to that. I'll come up and I'll read a scripture and I'll pray for us and then we'll eat that together. And then we'll distribute a little cup of juice. Some of you may have grown up in a different tradition. They had wine. We're, we're going to go juice. All right? It was a Baptist church. All right? <laughs> but hang on to that cup of juice and then we'll take that together and then we'll stand and we'll close with a hymn. Fair enough? It's an exciting time to be able to celebrate and to remember what Jesus has done for us. So we'll distribute this, hang on to it, we'll take it together in just a moment.